my beautiful friends. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to introduce it a little bit. My guest today is Hemlock, and she is the manager of the Department of Lost and Misplaced or Misdirected Souls in Limbo and Purgatory. And due to her location in said limbo and purgatory, apparently the Wi-Fi doesn't work so great. So taking that in consideration, some parts of this episode are a little uh, laggy, or you might hear a slight echo because, you know, underworld. And then also the internet tried to like catch up after being laggy. So it kind of sounds a little robot-y. I did the best I could editing, but you know what? It's purgatory. What are you going to do? So just take that in consideration and don't throw tomatoes at us because we did our best. All right. Have fun with this episode. It's a little different. So I do my normal segment and then Hemlock segment is kind of like a Q&A. We got questions from Patreon and we just kind of picked her brain about pantheons and gods and it was amazing. So enjoy. Take it away past Kina and Hemlock. Welcome to Historical AF. I'm Kina. And I'm Himla. We're a historian and a special guest delivering the funny and morbid historical religious nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. I am so excited you're here. Me too. I'm so excited to be here. I'm such a fan. I literally sent your TikTok to everybody I know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm just, I'm living in constant dread of the day I go to a store somewhere and someone recognizes me in the store and comes running up and goes, Emma! No, that would be a magical day. Like, I live in constant fear of that day now. No, it's a day to embrace. Of if COVID is still a thing or not, I'll be like, social distance! Well, hopefully the mask will help. The incognito. Hopefully. I did go down to Ikea a couple months ago in Dallas because I needed some stuff. And I posted a TikTok about it when I got back, and people were like, oh, I thought I saw you there. And I was like, oh my gosh, am I that recognizable as that costume? That's amazing. I'm just waiting for somebody to know who I am. Yes, no. <laughs> well, to be really honest, I never expected my TikToks to go anywhere. And I've talked about this in some of my lives, but like, I got the idea with watching... Matt Mason Denver's Welcome to Hell with the non-binary demon receptionist. And I thought, oh, well, what would a social worker look in the afterlife? Obviously, they work in the bone purgatory because that's where lost and, and souls go. And the character walked into my head and was like, yo, write it down. So I did. And I was like, okay, well, I'll make a few TikToks as just, you know, a creative writing exercise and nobody will watch them. And then I'll write out a script for like a one season, you know, 30 minute episode TV show. And I'll bring my friends with beer and pizza to film it with me. And then we'll post it on YouTube and nobody will watch it. And that'll be the end of it. And famous last word, people watch it. (laughs) A first video blew up. And I was like, I'll post that video today. Posted it. Went into a service. Came out of the service. And my phone had over 100 notifications on it. I was like, what? the hell happened in this last hour because that video blew up and I was suddenly had all these followers and I was just like oh shit I don't know what to do with this I'm not prepared for this what do I do but you know I've kind of been working my way through it and it's really great but I'm gonna be real honest if I'd known I was gonna blow up the way I was gonna blow up when I posted that video I might not have posted it like it was kind of a whoopsie moment (laughs) your first one that's incredible 
just doesn't happen. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't the first one that I posted. It was. I think it was my third one. Oh, okay. like not my third TikTok, but my third Hemlock TikTok. It, I think it was. It was the Black Lives Matter one with, with, oh. with the protester who goes to Vol Hall. That was the first one that really blew up. Okay. Yeah, that was the one that first went on everybody's For You page. And a few days later, my mom and my youngest sister, both of whom live in Florida, texted me within a couple of minutes of each other. And my sister texted me, was someone going to tell me you were TikTok famous or was I just going to have to see you on my For You page? <laughs> and my mother texted me and said, you just made me spray coffee all over my keyboard with your video. It came up on my For You page. And I was like, oh, no. My conservative mother found my TikTok. Oh, no. <laughs> and how long ago was that? September. Oh, okay. It was, I think, September 1st was the day I put the first, my first hemlock TikTok. So it was like the second or third week of September that I posted the BLM one and it just kind of went. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening? But yeah, now I'm writing a book about the character, trying to at least. And uh, we'll see where it goes. You said that so casually. Yeah, I've only got a page. Thing is, my mother was an English teacher, so I often had to write things as punishments, like I had to write essays for punishment. And I haven't finished a creative writing project since high school. Oh, okay. So we'll see if this gets finished. But since I've got a following, people keep harassing me about the book. I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to have enough motivation to actually, you know, finish this book. But we'll see what happens. I believe in you. That is so exciting. Yeah, it's... It's an exciting adventure. We'll we'll see where it leads. And what else? But do I love you doing do? it. It's fun. Well, for my day job, I'm a massage therapist. Oh, cool! That's a lot of fun. I have a lot of weird niche interests, but uh, I also do like the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is like a medieval reenactment group, which helps to feed these unhappy sessions. You are so interesting. <laughs> That's a very nice way to say that I'm a weirdo. No, <laughs> not at all. So what else do you do for your TikTok? I know you have a Patreon. I do have a Patreon. I've also got a, a, a Ko-Fi. Not that, you know, that's really the thing since I've got my Patreon now. I do have some merch up. And slowly but surely building my little hemlock afterlife empire. Wasn't expecting, to, uh, other than, you know, actually going viral myself, was that it would resonate so deeply with people. Like number of, of messages and comments that I get from people, not just those who've suffered from religious trauma either, although there is way too much of that for my liking, mm-hmm. but just people who, you know, they just, for whatever reason, really resonate with that particular video and it, you know, soothed their soul in some way. I've had several people tell me that I was the reason they got on bed that morning, oh. which is really sweet, but also really breaks my heart a little yeah. bit that, you know, they're in such a, a struggling place but i'm glad to be able to to provide that lift that they need Mm -hmm. so i can never stop doing this now yeah (laughs) you're locked in forever (laughs) i am i'm locked into this and i love it i love every bit of it so i hope that there really is this position in the afterlife and you get it someday (laughs) like way 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 down like after you lived 100 years There's a lot of people who are coming on my comments and they're like, are we sure that she's not actually this and she's just doing this just to kind of give us a preview? And I'm just kind of like, mm, no comments. 
Yes. So you're here to confirm that you're actually human, right? <laughs> uh, yes, I am, in fact, a mortal human woman <laughs> who lives on Earth. Mm-hmm. I am, in fact, mortal, like like all the rest of you. I do like the idea that if there is somebody in this position being like, she's doing a great job. Let's just keep her name, you know, whenever her time is, we'll we'll hire her. I hope great. so. I hope so. Like honestly, that that'd be my jam. I'd like I'd, I would like doing that in the afterlife. There's a lot of me in Hemlock. And I love it cuz that's kind of how I envision the afterlife. I've always been kind of a religious hippie. Mm-hmm. God's probably the same across the board. He she they just, you know, show themselves as whatever that culture needs at the time. So, like, to me, it just makes mm-hmm. sense that there would be, like, a central being like, oh, this is your pantheon because this is how you saw it. And I just, uh, I've never subscribed to the idea that if you didn't believe in this one God, you're going to go to hell because it seems like a waste of humanity to punish everybody else. Yeah, it didn't make exactly. sense to me. That was one of the questions that I asked when I was a child. I was raised Southern Baptist. One of the questions that I asked was, well, what about people who lived before Jesus? And never got a satisfactory answer to that one. And then what about people who are really, really good, but, you know, they've never been talked to about Jesus? Are they still going to go to hell because they didn't say these these special magic words? Yeah. Again, never got a satisfactory answer to that one. But I was also a very strange child who read a lot about different mythologies and religions growing up. Much to my mother's consternation. She was always very concerned about that. But um, she thought I was going to become some, you know, heathenist pagan, which she's not far off. Uh, But (laughs) I believe in in what I post. I believe that all the afterlives are real, that all religions are on some level correct, that all of the gods exist. Because I'm sorry, there is way too much similarity between the mythologies around the world Mm -hmm. for these gods not to have existed at least as real people in some points that evolved into God stories. There's no way. There's no way. There's no way. Mm-hmm. So I firmly believe that all religions are in some correct, that all the gods exist. Personally, I believe that we manifested them into existence. Ooh. That, you know, we made up the stories and that we just collectively, everybody believed that this, these gods existed and suddenly they existed. That's what I believe. I but, like um, that. Oh, man. So do you want to jump into the stories? <laughs> sure. All right. So you ready to get weird? <laughs> I'm ready. Let's get weird. Well, some people find this weird. I find it fascinating. And I, and I bet you guys are going to too. We're going to talk about some bones. Lots of them because I couldn't narrow it down. <laughs> and this will also be a photo heavy episode. So be on the lookout on social media and the website, historicalafpodcast.com. Or you can join Patreon and watch this shameless plug. Have you ever heard of an ossuary? Yes. Okay, good. They're yes. so cool. Ossuaries are where they uh, store bones. Yeah. They're, they're really neat. They're really, really neat. For those of you that have never heard of an ossuary, they are a repository for human skeletal remains. Meaning before the remains are placed in an ossuary, they're either buried or the body is left to decompose first. And then it's exhumed and cleaned and then put in said ossuary. The use of ossuaries in ancient practice is throughout Europe and the Near East. And we're talking four to 6,000 years ago in the Neolithic and Bronze Ages. So they old. They're old. So 3,000 years ago, ancient Persians, more specifically the Zoroastrians, placed the remains of their dead in a 
Ostudan, which literally translates to place of bones. And I have a photo. So a guiding principle in Zoroastrian funerary practices is to prevent the impure rotting flesh from ever coming in contact with the soil, water, or fire. So the body of a person who has died was left exposed in an isolated structure called a dakma or a tower of silence. There it would decompose and then be scavenged by vultures before the bones would be collected and placed in an ossuary. And here is the Tower of Silence. Nice. Yeah, so there'd just be bodies on top of there being like pecked at. Pure flesh removed. (laughs) So in contrast to the Zoroastrians, the Eastern Orthodox Church funerals are based on the belief that the body is a temple. Therefore, cremation is forbidden. And the bodies of people who died are traditionally exhumed after several years and placed in an ossuary, often at a special memorial service as an anniversary of their death. In the first century, Jewish communities traditionally buried their dead by wrapping the body in cloth and placing it in a tomb hewn out of rock. And then a year or so later after the burial, the bones would be retrieved and then placed in an ossuary that was stored in the tomb. This practice is believed to have ended about the third century. And of course, ossuaries are very common in Catholic countries. In the medieval and early modern periods, they were used to save space after cemeteries became super full. Especially during the plagues. Yeah. So either an ossuary could be done because of spiritual beliefs or it could be convenience. So we got it on both sides of the spectrum here. The simple purpose of ossuaries mean that they can come in all shapes and sizes because the only criteria is that they hold dim bones. So we're going to start out small and then we're going to get big. Dim bones, dim bones, dim bones, dim bones. Dim bones, bones. Okay, so we're going to start small. This is the James ossuary. It's in private possession right now in Israel. It's a limestone box from the first century that was discovered in the Silwan Valley near the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. The bones once contained in this ossuary have long since disappeared, but an Aramaic inscription on it reads, quote, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Mic drop. So the existence of the James ossuary was announced by Israeli antiquities collector Odin Golan at a press conference in 2002 and temporarily exhibited it at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. I vaguely remember hearing about the a big deal, as I recall. Yeah. You know, proof that Jesus existed. The biblical archaeologists accept that this is first century ossuary. Nobody has ever doubted the authentication of that aspect, but people question the inscription. Mm-hmm. So in 2004, Golan was charged with forgery by the Israeli Antiquities Authority. But in 2012, after eight years in trial, the claims were dismissed and then the James ossuary was returned. And it just came down to there wasn't enough evidence to actually convict him of forgery because there were experts on both sides. So people are saying this is absolutely an authenticated inscription. And then some other people are like, well, maybe he added it and just made it look old. Hard to say. Yeah. And he got off for the forgery, but he was charged for stolen property and violating antiquity laws. And this is why... There's so much skepticism is because the artifact was not found by an archaeologist or as part of any licensed archaeological expedition or dig. It is believed that the ossuary was stolen from a burial cave 
and it's unclear by whom. Yeah, so we're never going to actually know, but it is kind of exciting that it can't be disproven because so many biblical relics have been proven false very easily. So I think it's kind of cool that they can't prove it's fake. And uh, if it is real, it's the first mention of Jesus ever. So that's kind of cool. And it was in the news relatively recently. I'm thinking 2015, there was a, a burial tomb close to this that had a lot of names related to Jesus. And some people think maybe this came from that and they're trying to connect the dots. But again, we'll never know. Because, you know, it wasn't a proper archaeologist that took it. It's true. You just. All right. So we're going to move on to something slightly bigger. And this is a charnel house. I think I'm saying that right. And a charnel house just means a building or a vault where bones are piled. Uh, So picture it. You're in Northamptonshire, England. You're visiting the Holy Trinity Church in Rothwell. So you find this narrow staircase and you start going down it and you think, of course I'm going to go down there. And then bam, you find yourself in a really scary, tiny dungeon full of bones. Bam. (laughs) Talk about your haunted house. Right? So this is a little bigger. It's a room and it's just stacked with a lot of bones. A little bookshelf of skulls, if you will. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is really cool because it's believed to be one of only two medieval charnel houses in England that still hold their original human remains. So she a big deal. And this particular charnel house is from the 12th and 13th century-ish era, and it holds the remains of at least 2,500 people. In this instance, the bodies were probably relocated inside the charnel house when space was needed for new burials since it was a small churchyard. The space is said to have been sealed up for centuries, and then it was rediscovered in the 1700s. (laughs) You guys ready for a new nightmare scenario you never knew you needed? Can you imagine a person walking down in there and you're going to a church and you think there's nothing bad can happen to me here? It's a church and you walk in and bones everywhere. Bones. It was worse because it was a grave digger and he was digging a grave and he fell through into this room. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. I was oh. not aware of that story. And it was the 1700s, so there wasn't therapy yet. So that poor guy, I just, I am glad I'm not here. (laughs) Probably. And another cool fact is that it was originally lit with two windows, and it had a wall painting of the resurrection in there. So it was clearly intended to actually be visited by living people, and it wasn't just a storeroom. So that's kind of cool. Nice. And it has recently been digitized, so there are 3D models online, and I'll have links in the show notes if you guys want to check that out. All right, so we're going to get a little little bigger. So now we're going to talk about a charnel house that's in Eggenberg Channel in Austria, and I hope I'm saying that right. It's a 14th century example that holds the remains of 5,800 people. The main difference here is that these bones are arranged in artistic design. I've seen pictures of this before online. It's really cool looking. Yeah, and it's also in a pit. So you're looking down. Right now, you're not allowed to go back in there anymore. So you have to stand behind glass looking down. But it's really cool. 
kind of like a weird skull spiral down into a pit. <laughs> I think it's mentioned- really, really cool how even with something as scary as death, we're able to take and turn it into something beautiful. Like, uh, yes, it's yeah. a little macabre, but it's also, it's, it's beautiful and it has a lot of meaning, you know, to us as humans. Oh, absolutely. I find these gorgeous. I know some people get freaked out, but mm-hmm. I think they're beautiful. So there are mentions of this site as early as 1299, but the majority of this house was constructed in 1405. And like I said, right now you can, probably not right now because of COVID. Yay, COVID. But you can look down into it. They don't let anybody in there because people vandalize this. Like who vandalizes human remains? I just, I don't understand People it. who want to get haunted, that's who. <laughs> do you want ghosts? Because that's how you get ghosts. Like, no, <laughs> why would you do that? God, no home training. People are, this one's wild. So now we're going to move along to a crypt. And this is the Capuchin Crypt in Rome. And it's a series of small chapels under the, okay, I'm going to try to do this. It's Italian. Don't judge me. I'm sorry. Okay. The Santa Maria della Concinzione de Cappuccini. I think I nailed it. I YouTubed it. So I hope I nailed, nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> It contains the skeletal remains of 3,700 intact and dismembered people believed to be Capuchin friars. So this one actually has completely assembled people in it, unlike the other ones. And a little bit of history. So the Capuchin friars were a religious sect founded in the 16th century, and they got their names from the hood that you can see in this photo. And it's attached to the habits. And they were called the Cappuccino because their robes were espresso colored. So a little fun fact. (laughs) By the 17th century, they were moving to this new location. And they were ordered to bring all the old friars from the old monastery with them. So it took 300 cartloads of skeletons to relocate them here. And then Pope Urban the Eighth. It always takes me a second to read Roman numerals. <laughs> I swear I'm smart. Pope Urban the Eighth even ordered the soil of the crypt be brought in from Jerusalem. And then afterwards, as the monks died, they were added to these crypts after about thirty years of decomposing in the ground. And I said there were a lot of little small rooms, so there's six total. The first one is this one. This one's called the Crypt of the Resurrection. And it features a picture of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's framed by skeletal remains. Mm-hmm. Lots of bones. Lots of bones. The mass chapel is an area used to celebrate mass. And it doesn't contain bones. But it does have a plaque with the acronym DOM, which stands for Dio Optimo Maximo, which is to God the best, the greatest. A term initially referred to from pagan gods, you know, Jupiter, but then it was claimed by the Christians later. The plaque actually contains the heart of Maria Felice Peretti, the grandniece of Pope Sixtus V, and a supporter of the Capuchin Order. So it has an actual heart in it. Yeah, that was a common belief, especially, you know, Middle Ages through the Renaissance, that, you know, the heart was the seat of the soul, and the closer your heart was to the altar in a church the closer you would be to god in heaven so a lot of people would you know they'd be buried in the churchyard but they'd ask their heart be cut out and buried somewhere in the church and the richer you were 
the money you could pay to the monks and the closer they'd put you to the altar. Yeah. Catholicism is really fascinating to me. So I, I do really find is. all the body parts everywhere really fascinating. <laughs> oh, huh. This chapel also contains the tomb of the Papal Zuaves, Zuaves, who died defending the Papal States in the Battle of Porta Pia. So there's a tomb in there, too. So that's pretty cool. And then next, we have the Crypt of the Skulls, which is exactly what it sounds like. There are possibly thousands of skulls that decorate that space. And then, and then, and then, there's the Crypt of the Pelvises. (laughs) Oh, it makes me laugh. So it has skeletons dressed in their hooded friar frocks, and they're suspended from the walls, and then they're surrounded by just a bunch of pelvises. And they kind of look like butterflies. <laughs> I just, I think that's really funny because yeah, as you said, they do kind of look like butterflies. But when you think about it, Christianity especially is such a purity culture religion. And the fact that they would take all of these pelvises, which is where your genitalia are located, which yeah. is supposedly the no-no square, and surround <laughs> the monks with it, who are supposed to be celibate. So they're surrounded oh. by all of these no-no squares. <laughs> It's one of those really funnily ironic things if you think about it. Maybe it's just me and my demented brain. But that's where my head goes first every time. <laughs> no, that's a perfect forever. No, no squares. Yeah, it is it is very startling to think. The whole wall is just a shit ton of pelvises. <laughs> and they also have the crypt of the leg bones and thigh bones. They actually make a lot of like crossed arms, kind of like a pirate, like skull and crossbones mm-hmm. situation out of leg bones. So that's kind of cool. And then this one, probably the most well-known one. So this is the Crypt of the Three Skeletons. So it has three complete skeletons of friars that are wearing the, the frocks. And there's also people on the side that are in a bench of more pelvises. (laughs) And then hanging from the ceiling is another complete skeleton that has a scythe in its hand and a scale in the other. And then a plaque under the three monks or friars says the inscription in five different languages, quote, what you are now, we used to be what we are now. You will be. So that's dark. Cheerful. The whole, uh, everybody's going to (laughs) die. Like, that's fun. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we're all going to die, we might as well be good about it, right? Yeah. And uh, some of the bones are purposely children, which is also like a nod to like you could die at any time, even if you're little, you know, not everybody gets to be old. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a thing. <laughs> all right. So now we're going to move on to an even bigger. I'm just waiting on the edge of my if you get one, I hope you're getting to. Probably. All right. So this is the Sedlik Ossuary in Kos- oh Lord. Kosnika Ossuary Beinhaus. And it's in the Czech Republic. And it is one of the most macabre works of art in the world. And it has 40,000 skeletons in it. Is this the one you were thinking of? It's so cool. Yeah, this is the one I was thinking of. It's so cool. It is. It's on my list of places to visit one day. Oh, yes. Same. 
So it has everything, you guys. It has a bone chandelier that has at least one of every human bone in it. It has two large bone chalices, four Baroque-style bone candelabras, six enormous bone pyramids, two bone monstrances, which is a vessel used to display the Eucharist host. It has a family crest made out of bones. And then a lot of skull candle holders. <laughs> it's like a goth dream in there. It really is. It is a goth sweat dream. Yes. Like all it and needs you- is some black velvet curtains and uh, some glitter and you've got it. Like <laughs> It's true. And then if you look at the ceiling, it looks like streamers made out of bones. Kind of like a birthday party, but mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Not really cool. <laughs> So the Sedlik Ossuary kind of begins around 1278 when the king of Bohemia sent the abbot of Sedlik, whose name was Henry, to Jerusalem to grab some dirt. So like, cue the Johnny Depp, I got a jar of dirt memes, you know. (laughs) Which, by the way, we have a Patreon gift exchange and I got a jar of dirt. It's very small. Can you see it? Nice. It's from Vlad and Paler's castle. That's fantastic. I know. I love it so much. And then my postman ran over it, the package, so it shattered. But the the soil's good. Everything else broke. But phew. Anyway, jar of dirt. (laughs) When the abbot came back, he brought with him that jar of soil from Golgotha, which is known as holy soil. And that area is also known as the Calvary. And it's a skull-shaped hill in Jerusalem, thought to be the site where Jesus was crucified. So very significant to the Christians. So Mm -hmm. he scattered this holy soil across the Sedlik Cemetery, securing its place as one of the most desired burial places in all of Bohemia and surrounding countries. So everybody wanted to get buried there. Then you have like the 14th century plague and then you have the Crusades. So before you know it, 30,000 people are buried in the cemetery. A lot. I just wonder how these people, you know, how their souls must feel about their bodies, their skeletons being used decoratively yeah. in the church in which they wanted yeah. to be buried. Like, are they happy with it? Are some of them unhappy? Do they care? Personally, yeah, I think it would be really cool, but... Yeah, and especially because they wanted to be in that soil, and now they are not, mm-hmm. so... I bet it's haunted. But it is. So it didn't take very long for there to run out of room. So they started moving the bodies into a crypt so that they could have more soil for newly dead bodies. And then in 1870, a local woodcarver named Jesus Christ, okay, Frontiska Rent, oh, that's a hard name, was employed for the dark task of artistically arranging the thousands of bones. So he came up with the Bone Church stunning chandelier first. And everybody was like, that's amazing. Like, what you're doing? Let's keep going. So then he moved on to the coat of arms, which is Elias. Oh, hold on. I got to upload it. Un momento. <laughs> but I will take this moment while you're doing that to mention that while the ossuaries and all of that, you know, might only date to back to a certain time period. We've been doing art with human bones for almost as long as we've had human bones to be doing art with, whether that's been, you know, out of respect to the dead or as war trophies. I recently, I, I say recently, it's probably a few months ago now, I watched this documentary where they were talking about 
Wales and, you know, the first people to come to Wales and quote unquote red woman mm-hmm. who was discovered in her body was discovered in a cave. And whoever had buried her went back after she had decomposed or he had I might have been a man that misnamed it. I can't remember now, but they went back afterwards and painted the bones with red ochre. As was apparently some kind of prehistoric burial, right? That you went back and you uncovered the body and you put red ochre on it, which was a sacred color and material to those people. And it was supposed to help, you know, bring them closer in ancestor worship or something. So while a lot of this, of this stuff that we're talking about is like Roman period and medieval, it goes all the way back into prehistory using bones mm-hmm. to hold on to our our past loved ones because that's what lasts the longest that's very true and across all cultures there was no just like Mm -hmm. one it was everybody so he also made a coat of arms out of the bones which is pretty badass and then my favorite part of this is that there is a raven pecking out the eyeball of a skull (laughs) i love ravens corvids are awesome birds so this is supposed to be a severed head of a Turk. And then the the ravens pecking his eyeballs out. And then he was also the one responsible for the idea of bleaching all the bones so that they would be really, really shiny and white. And it would be uniform. So all of them the same color. And then he used bones to sign his name in the church, too. So he wanted everybody to know it was him. I mean, I'd be proud of that work. That's true. And it's one of the biggest tourist attractions in the entirety of Czech Republic. And it's the most visited in Central Bohemian region. Yep. And I have read that, like, they get slightly annoyed by how many tourists show up. Because it's a smaller town and just tons of people. But And tourists are stupid. That is very true. <laughs> All right. And so my last one, we're going to go big. Super big. Are we going to Paris for this one? We are. To the catacombs. And I've actually been in the catacombs. They're so cool. I wanted to do that on the trip I was supposed to go on with my sister. I went in 2006, and then they closed 2007, I think. Oh, I'll get into it. I forgot already. (laughs) All right. So we're going to end on (laughs) 186.4 miles worth of tunnels lined with bones. That is a lot of people. A lot of souls. A lot of souls. That place has a, it has a vibe. I will say that. It is a very weird, weird vibe. So it was originally called the Municipal Ossuary. And it's now known as the Paris Catacombs. It's the world's largest and one of the only ones underground. So it's very significant. Over 6 million bodies worth of bones line the walls of these tunnels that lie beneath the streets of Paris. So how did they all get down there, Kina? Well, I'm going to tell you. As Paris began to grow, they started (laughs) to run into a major problem. By the 17th century, enough people had lived and died in Paris that cemeteries were literally overflowing to a point where, like, corpses were, like, popping out of the ground. Yikes. (laughs) And just imagine the disease risk, you know, like, what Mm -hmm. you could catch from all the the dead people. So double yikes. But that's not even the worst thing that happened. <laughs> if you lived near the neighborhood of Les Innocents, 
the city's oldest and largest cemetery, you had it the worst. See, they reported that the cemetery exuded a strong smell of decomposing flesh, and even the perfume stores claimed they couldn't do business because the smell was so bad. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. But wait, there's I just can't more. imagine living like that. Right? Uh, so in 1763, Louis XV issued an edict banning all burials from occurring inside the capital because they're running out of room. But because the church was pushing back, they didn't do anything because he didn't want to mess with the church. It's kind of like a he wants to appease the people, but he doesn't want to deal with the fighting of the Catholics. So Louis the 16th. God, it takes me a minute to count in Roman numerals. I suck. So he came afterwards and he continued the crusade and he proclaimed that all cemeteries should be moved outside the city limits of Paris. But it wasn't until 1780 that anything happened. So that year, there was a prolonged period of rain that caused the wall around Les Innocents to collapse, spilling rotting corpses into all the neighboring properties. Mm-hmm. Yet, a tidal wave of rotting corpses. <laughs> I like in the most elegant city in the world. The city of love and rotting corpses. <laughs> I just can't. Not a good time. So off to the tunnels we go. And these tunnels happen to date back way into like the Roman era when Fran- like France was still Gaul. So they had already started making these tunnels. Like when I was in Paris, I didn't realize how much underground area was Roman cities. So like Roman bath, there's a Roman bath underneath Notre Dame de Paris. So it's like super cool and it's this whole thing. But it was also a major limestone quarry. So basically everything that is Paris came from underground. So it created this honeycomb of tunnels from when they were quarrying. So they began working to move the bones from the cemeteries to five stories below Paris. And in 1786, they started with Les Innocents. (laughs) I suck at French. So they started there. And then I think we can all agree they deserve to go first, honestly. So yay for them. Yeah. And it took the city 12 years to move all the bones from bodies numbering between six and seven million dollars bodies into the catacombs. And the oldest of which dated back to the Merovingian era, which was 1200 years ago. And then I also thought it was kind of sweet. So every wagon load of remains had a priest with it and they would chant the office of the dead prayer in a cycle the entire time so that they could remain in peace. And then the site was consecrated as the Paris municipal ossuary on April 7th, 1786. So they consecrated all the ground once everybody was in there. So at least they, they tried to keep everybody at peace. At least they thought they were. <laughs> peace there can be when you're rattling in a donkey cart down the streets of Paris into a, into a cavern. But I mean, true. at least they tried. The thought was there. Exactly. They did there. And then later it took on the name catacombs and it it came from Rome. They saw that the Romans had catacombs and that was cool. So then they started kind of aligning themselves with that. During the French Revolution, the dead were buried directly into the catacombs ossuaries. So some famous examples was Jean-Paul Marat. He was one of the revolution's most radical voices. 
Um, if you've ever seen that really famous painting of a dude in the bathtub with a letter in his hand and he's dead, the death Marat, that's that guy. And, and then also uh, Maximilien de Robespierre, he was also interred. I'm sure everybody's heard of him. He was very influential in the reign of terror and the revolution. But the city stopped moving bones into ossuaries in 1860. And before it opened to the public in 1809, it underwent an extensive decorative rearrangement under the inspector Herakart de Thury, I think. And he decided that it should have like a museum monument approach to it. So he's the dude responsible for the alignment of the bones. Before that, they were just kind of piled. Not very aesthetically pleasing. Design is more respectful. Yeah. Yeah. They're beautiful. So mm-hmm. the facade consists of rows of tibia alternating with skulls, and they fit together kind of like a puzzle. That's what it kind of looks like. And mm-hmm. so that's the main things of wall. And then they have altars that have different bones and different designs, but it's all set up where you can like pray and do things and it's very neat if you ever get a chance to go i definitely would they also brought in kind of masonry monument styles so like an egyptian so there's like dork columns there's stelas tombs uh things throughout too so he brought in some different aesthetics i did not know this i found this on the uh catacomb website but he also had the idea of bringing in like cabinets of curiosities dedicated to different types of science so there was actually like one for mineralogy and then pathology and the pathology one had bones that had illnesses or deformations because i'm sure if you're down there you're gonna find some bones that have like maybe cancer deformed so that's pretty neat Um, yeah with six million worth of people in there there's going to be quite a few that have abnormalities yeah so at this point they wanted to encourage visitors to you know for introspection and meditation on death. That was kind of the idea that they were going for there. And then when you enter the catacombs, in one entrance, there's a lot of them. It has a big sign, and I'm not even going to attempt this in French, but in English it says, stop, this is the empire of the dead. Very dramatic, and I love it. (laughs) Yeah. That's the entrance that I want to enter into. Like, mm-hmm. would drag my sister and be like, "Look, we're going to the Empire of the Dead." She'll be like, "Fuck you! I'm not going in there." You and your morbid tastes. Yes. So this is the entrance from the like street level. So if you're not looking for it, you would totally miss it. Because when we finally no, found it, yeah, it was like, "That's it." Yeah, and then you're going down this like spiral staircase and it feels like you're going forever, but it's super cool. So it began as opening only to like privileged Parisians, so like rich people. And then everybody else was like, well, fuck that. I want to go down there too. So they eventually opened it to everybody. And then the church decided they didn't like people gawking at dead people. So it closed for 17 years. And then we kind of bounce around. So it started out where they agreed to allow it to open four times a year. And then eventually it went to once a month and then bi-weekly. And then the World's Fair showed up. So they're like, well, now we have to do it, you know, weekly. So they're like, all right, whatever. And then it did so well at the World's Fair that eventually it went to daily. And since we can't have nice things, people vandalized it and it closed in September of 2009. (sighs) <sighs> I hate people. It reopened in the summer of 2020. 
So it's open again. It has like some very serious, like strict COVID rules, but you can go down there now. So that's kind of cool. But I thought the coolest part is uh, Europe is so different. It's not weird. It's better. But in the US, we have no home training. So everywhere you go, there's security guards yelling at you and there's like ropes and things. And in Europe, they just assume that you know not to touch things. So there's nothing down there. There's no security. They just tell you like, don't cross any of the lines because they have everything chained off and uh you're just down there alone in a catacomb with millions of dead people it's uh it's it's weird it was really humbling because you just it hits you like how many people died down there but i just found it really interesting as an american being like they really out here trusting us huh In high school, I did a European choir tour, and Paris was one of the stops, and we went to the Louvre, and Mm -hmm. I waited in line for four hours to see the Mona Lisa, and that was the only part of the museum that had a security guard, Mm -hmm. and I got up there, and, like, I stepped up and barely had a glance at it, and the security guard's going, all right, go on, go on. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm an art student and I flew all the way from Prince Edward Island, Canada to see the Mona Lisa. Because that was my story. Because it was, there was a lot of anti-American sentiment at the time. So for all intents and purposes, I was Canadian. And he just <laughs> looked at me and went, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you were an American. Stay as long as you like. <laughs> I admired the Mona Lisa and I looked very, very closely at it. And then I went off and I looked at all the other paintings that I could get up with a hair's breadth of without someone screaming at me to back away from the art. It was really cool. Yeah I, think, I, yeah, I went during the Bush administration and a few people asked me like my thoughts and I was like, I'm from Arkansas. Like, and they're like, do you know Bill Clinton? I'm like, yeah, he's my cousin. And they were like, fuck yeah. <laughs> no, he's not. Everybody thinks we're all related. But yeah, if you said Bill Clinton, they were like, yeah, fuck yeah we like him. So. So it is open to the public. It's only a small section. I think when I went, it was like a mile that you could even see. And people have gotten lost. There are urban legends about people getting stuck there and stuff. But I think like two teenagers died in the 2000s sometime. And because you get disoriented. Yeah, Yeah. So definitely stay where you're supposed to. Don't go in there if you uh, happen upon an entrance or something. You might die. And it's probably haunted as fuck. So don't go alone. <laughs> yeah, that's don't another go thing. Alone. Don't follow any voices. But there is a legend that if you're in the catacombs after midnight, the walls begin to speak to you and you hear disembodied voices that will persuade you to venture deeper and deeper into the catacombs until you can't find your way out and you die. <laughs> the end. That's Very my story. <laughs> Hurry oh. back. Be sure to bring your death certificate if you <laughs> to join us. Haunted Mansion. Solid Haunted River. Mansion's my favorite ride. Can you tell? Oh, I love it so much. Oh, I know. I think they had an Airbnb situation. I think it was probably a charity where people could stay in there at night. So, But you're probably required to stay in a small roped-off area, but... I mean, that would be kind of cool, Airbnb, the catacombs. Nope. <laughs> uh, like, I'm torn. Like, I, I want to stay at a haunted place for the experience, but I'm also, like, a baby back bitch. I would be so scared. 
I was really sensitive as a child. Like, I, I never heard or saw things, but I sensed things. I sensed presences. One time I went downstairs to get a glass of water, and I was going back up the stairs, and there was someone following me up the stairs. I could feel them behind me, and I reached back, and I felt cold silk in my hands. And let me tell you, I never ran to my investor in my fucking life. Oh, man. But my grandparents have a lot of antique furniture in their house, uh-huh. a lot of it from Europe. So I think there was some stuff Ooh. attached there. Yeah. So I kind of trained myself out of that a little bit growing up because it just, it freaked me out so much. All right. Are you ready for yours? I'm so excited. I'm ready. Let's do this. <laughs> so I'm trying to remember. I, I remember there was one question that, that someone had wanted to ask about Hades. And how best to please him and curry favor. Personally, I don't work with with deities really. It as my family asks, I'm still very much a Christian. But I have um, done some reading on it and listening to other practitioners, other you know, you know, like witches who who work with Hades. My advice would be make nice with Persephone and mm. set up a little altar space. Where you could leave offerings. So, as I understand, he likes flowers, anything gold, dog stuff because of, you know, Cerberus tend to be very popular offerings, especially in uh, like springtime when Persephone, according to myth, goes back to be with Demeter for spring instead of being in the underworld. So, candles are also usually a really nice offering, like a lot of candle for the deity. And candles are something that's used across a bunch of religions. So, if you're in the broom closet, release and hide that. <laughs> of all, I think of all of the Greek gods, Hades is kind of the most down to earth and chill and cool. Because you know, he's got his dog, he's got a steady, stable job, he's got his wife that he loves very much. He doesn't yeah. go running around turning into swans and eagles. He doesn't go around, you know, abusing the priestesses of Athena. Like yeah, Poseidon did like, like fuck yeah, and Zeus can't keep it in his pants. Jesus, he can't. <laughs> he can't. And it's funny because I saw a TikTok about this. Didn't really think that any time a, a Greek woman got pregnant and she wasn't supposed to be pregnant, she blamed it on Zeus. I feel like that's a thing Greek women would do. And I, just, I was listening to it. I was like, you know what? I mean, yeah. We all know that Zeus is a horned dog and he can't keep it in his pants. You can just claim that Zeus appeared to me in a golden shower as a weird animal. And, <laughs> and now you have a baby, honey. Yes. I, yeah. But there was this really fun Tumblr post I saw that was like a story prompt where this Greek guy comes home after being at war for like a year and his wife is six months pregnant. And so he goes on a sacred mission to punch Zeus in the face. And people added on to it. And they're like, by the end of it, you know, he's we've got a veritable army of cuckolded husbands and you know, demi- abandoned demigod children. And there's this one old woman who, um, no one's quite sure why she's there, but we're pretty sure she's here in disguise. <laughs> like, somebody really needs to write this book, but it can't be me because I want to read this book and experience it for the first time reading it. And if I write it, I know what's happening. So somebody else has to write this one. Oh, I always wished I was a demigod as a kid. I was such a weird kid. But I was like, yeah, maybe I am. And my powers just haven't shown up yet. 
I think we all did that. I think my entire generation did that, to be honest. Tara, remember, remember the other one was about what lesser-known deity would you recommend currying favor with? Yeah. And I, I gave it some thought. I gave it some thought. And it's not exactly a, an unknown deity, but, but I would say Hestia. Ooh, the Greek yeah. goddess of hearth and home. Because home is where you spend most of your time. Home is where, you know, you need to be able to relax and, you know, recover from wherever. And if you've got, you know, Hestia helping you look out for your home, then I, I would say that that would be the best one to, to carry favor with. And I think Hestia is a little bit of an underrated goddess. Um, so Hestia is actually really, really, really cool. I like Hestia. She's, she's a very modest goddess and she's always veiled in all of her depictions etc but she I, I think that Hestia is an aromantic sexual personally because in her myth a bunch of different gods wanted to marry her and she was totally not interested and so she went to Zeus and she said look can I have the permission to not be required to marry and Zeus Captain Horndog himself Said, yeah, sure, <laughs> whatever you want, sis. So her responsibility is taking care of the hearth fire on Olympus, you know, and maintaining balance in the home, etc. So even in a patriarchal society like the Greek society, and even her counterpart in Roman mythology, who I forget her Roman name off the top of my head, she always got the first and best portion of any sacrificial offering at home. Oh, so okay. when you were practicing, you know, your worship at home, you know, Hestia got her offering before Zeus came to the gods. She got the best offering above everybody else because her role was so important in maintaining the hearth as the symbol of home and stability. So I just, I think Hestia is a pretty bomb-ass goddess. Yeah. What's probably been the most interesting pantheon that you've come across, like when you're looking up stuff to do for your TikTok. Has there been one that surprised you? I don't think I've really been surprised by any of them. I will say when I was I was doing some research and I came across a Babylonian goddess, Baal, B-A-U, Baal. And she's listed, in, in the, the first things I was finding, she was listed as a goddess of healing. And then I was going back and going a little further and a little further, kind of, you know, peeling back the layers. Turns out she was originally a dog goddess. She was the goddess of dogs. And she became associated with healing because her temples were full of dogs and people would go to her temples to see the doctors that resided there for whatever reason. And so the dogs became associated with healing because, you know, they would help, they would, you know, lick the wounds or whatever and try and help the people who went. And so she became over time associated as a goddess of healing. So that was, I thought, a very interesting transition going from goddess of dogs to goddess of healing and, and still being a goddess of dogs. It was kind of, it was kind of an interesting wheelhouse uh, yeah. shift there, if you will. But yeah, the ancient Babylonian gods are really very interesting. I honestly, I find the Celtic pantheon a little confusing, which is probably makes the ancestors ashamed. Because there's just so many different... Because the Romans came in and messed everything up. Yeah. Basically. It's not clear anymore. 
So, and there's so many different names and you know, there's arguments over whether those are actually the same or it's a different God. And it's just, there's a lot of scholarly debate. And I'm like, can I just have a simple yes or no answer? Is this the God of, you know, music or poetry? Yeah. Like, that's all I need. Just want to confirm this before I write them into the story. But uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun doing the research on the different the different religions, the different gods and goddesses, and what what they did. I, I'm trying to find a little more more information on the Canaanite gods because that's where the Christian god comes from. He was originally a minor Canaanite storm deity who had a wife. Oh, he was married. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. And it's talked about in the Bible, like that he that there are other gods because the commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me not thou shalt have no other gods yeah it was that way because he was part of a pantheon and so the jewish people attaching specifically onto yahweh if that's even how the pronunciation is yahweh was a jealous god and he didn't want you worshiping other gods ahead of him he wanted to be the head honcho get the best sacrifices so you could have your other gods and your wife could worship his wife but you know officially he had to be the head god and i forget now the connection but there the primary god was named, was called el el and oh. uh and adonai is el adonai or or al shaddai or whatever has become synonymous with uh, with yahweh specifically but it was actually a different god and so over time that just kind of evolved into terminology that was used to describe Yahweh instead of a, the name of another God. But I don't remember the verses, but in, I think in some Psalm, a Song of Solomon and maybe the Psalms, there's conversations between Yahweh and other gods of the, of the Canaanite pantheon. So there's biblical evidence, that, and of course I can't put a name to it right now, because it was forever ago that I looked that up. But there's biblical evidence that, you know, not only do other gods exist, but God acknowledges the existence of the other gods. That's so fascinating. That's the truth. Like, yeah. So as far as afterlives go, which one do you think would be like the best party? Norse, the best maybe? party. That honestly, that's where my head went first with Thor's Hall in in the Norse afterlife would probably be the best party. That's what I'm thinking. Because, you know, mead. Like, oh, sorry, I... Dionysus, but the, <laughs> the Vikings got your beats. Yeah. Absolutely. I bet other are probably like, I want to go over there. <laughs> That's what happens, is they all just go to the halls in, in the Norse afterlife, and, you know, they pregame in their own afterlife, and then they go and they get really sloshed on mead. <laughs> and and that's why all the parties there are best, because uh, but again, all the other afterlife seem pretty interesting. Like I think it's the Aztec afterlife. You have to literally battle your way through all these different levels to get to the best afterlife. So you know, even in, and of course that's partly just as they were a warrior society. Even the afterlife is exciting and and adventuresome. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you didn't get just get, you know, slung a robe and a harp and tossed onto a cloud and you know, have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Oh man, Aztecs are amazing. Yeah. Everything about that society just blows my mind. It's an amazing culture. Mm-hmm. I read so much about the Aztecs, especially the human sacrifice file. Yeah. Freaked my mother out. <laughs> like that reminds me again of another Tumblr post. I'm not on Tumblr all that much, but <laughs> all of these posts just stick with me. Uh, about this little girl who was reading horrible histories and she read the Aztec one and she was at this really like conservative school in a really Christian, like white Christian suburb area. And uh, she did her presentation on the Aztecs and she had like the headdress and was talking about, you know, the, the festival for you know, this particularly bloody festival with hundreds of human sacrifices. And she ended the uh, presentation like, and she's just gradually getting louder and louder and, and shriller and shriller as she's going through this and she ends the presentation literally screaming blood for the blood god and she's got streamers in her hands she throws it out <laughs> of course the teacher's sitting in the back pales as she all the other students are like crying they're scared and as <laughs> she's screaming and chanting blood for the blood god the principal walks in and that was how she got horrible histories banned from her school library. <laughs> like that that would have been me as a child if I could have gone yes. with it. I'm not gonna lie. If that's not my future child. So I, I guess my mother was right to be concerned. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like Oh we gotta funny. keep it interesting, right? Yeah. I think that even just talking about some of the lesser talked about pantheons. I think you're really opening mm-hmm. up a world to so many people that may have never even thought to look up the Incan, you know, afterlife or like you said, you know, the, mm-hmm. oh, what did you just say? <laughs> the Babylonian. Babylonian. I kept wanting Canaanite. to say Bohemian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just, I, I love that. And I yeah, think that's like, and just because our religion is not practiced anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, just because a religion is not practiced anymore doesn't mean that we shouldn't study it and understand it because it informs our religious practices today, yeah. no matter what your religion is. No, I love that. That's that's why I so, love that there's so many TikToks and podcasts popping up about religion and history because I think it's really, it's people mm-hmm. are learning more than they ever did before because of the way we can present information where it's not like boring or you know, well, mostly boring, but yeah, uh, that's exactly. why I love it. It's so interesting. I love watching your TikToks because I I learn things. And uh, thank you. It's, it's well, so fun. I just recently watched a documentary about. It was where was it? I can't. It's an Arabic name. I cannot for the life of me remember the the Arabic name. But it's in. I think it was in Iran, and it's this place they've discovered this religious complex that is older than Stonehenge, you know, because it was right around the time that our, that agriculture was becoming a thing. So it was literally the earliest religious complex that's ever been uncovered. And it had all of these carvings on it. And they were talking about, you know, how they weren't sure what religion they practiced, but they're pretty sure it was like an animal-based religion because most early were and just trying to study it and figure it out because that's the only link they have to these people is their religion so whether you believe in a religion or not whether you think it was ever valid or not whether you think those gods ever existed or not it's still an important link to human history 
Yeah. Because that's for so many, so many cultures, that's the only thing left is some of their religious artifacts, etc. That's the only way that we have to study and understand them is, is through their religion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well said. That's why I think a lot of people are fascinated about like ancient Egypt and a lot of that history we learn about is their, you know, their gods. And it tells you so much about a people and a culture. It's just so fascinating. Religious, like, like modification. Mm-hmm. It was a religious practice. But the through that religious practice, it's allowed us to learn a lot about who the ancient Egyptians were as a people, where they came from, when they first came to Egypt, all of the secular information about them that we can only learn through the religious aspect of mummification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, like mythologies, people are really, you know, interested in. We can learn so much more, even like, mm-hmm. you know, Greek and Roman even their politics is really old and it's so interesting. There's a lot to be learned from the oral traditions and mythologies of people like the Aboriginal people of um, Australia. Their oral stories are basically 100% accurate to when they when their people first came to Australia. They are so strict about their oral history and not a bit of it changing, not a bit of inflection changing, that it's basically identical to when they first came to the continent. And modern white, of course, white archaeologists are only just now realizing that they're talking on a lot of these stories about megaflora and fauna that are extinct. And they can learn so much about Australia and how it looked and you know, weather patterns and the creatures that live there and all of this, you know, important information historically about the landscape and the people just by listening to the indigenous people and their oral histories. But uh, I just watched a, literally just last night, watched a, a show about Easter Island, uh, Rapa Nui. Oh, yeah. And they were talking about the, the Moai. And I remember reading an article where they were just, it was when they're just figuring out how they moved, how they moved them, which by the rocking back and forth. Yeah. And I remember um, in this article, uh, one of the explorers or whatever, who was, who was first coming there, asked the people, how did they, how did they get these statues to where they were? And the people said, they walked. <laughs> and the Europeans were like, oh, these superstitious Natives, you know, they think that these were, you know, able to walk. That's not how it happened. And that's exactly how it happened. Yeah. Sorry, I have very strong feelings about this kind of thing. Like, oh, same, same. Yeah. Yeah, Easter Island's a trip. That's another one of those, like, aliens did it. And I'm like, no. No, aliens did not do that. Like, Come on, I learned when I was a kid that if you had something really heavy that you couldn't lift that you needed to move somewhere, if you get it on two points, you could walk it. Yeah. yeah. This is not difficult. I figured that out as a child. Try and blame aliens for everything, guys. Oh, like, yeah. It's my biggest pet peeve. Aliens. I, I rage. I have so much rage. That was my most recent TikTok was just like, what's the thing about history that makes you want to just like, ugh. Mine's aliens. I'm like, it's so racist, and people don't realize how racist it is. So racist. 
Like, yeah. and I'm one of those people that the universe is huge. We cannot be the only sentient, oh, yeah. intelligent life forms that formed in the entirety of the universe. There's no way. But at the same time, I don't think they're coming here building pyramids. No. No. I think they're sipping around. No. Probably probing some people, but they're not building shit. <laughs> like, they're just... No, if they're coming here, they're taking one look at us morons and running screaming in the other direction because, you know, humans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So context with religious texts is is hugely important as well because there is no religious text that comes 100% from a deity. Yeah. Even if something does happen to be divinely inspired, Pastafarianism, anyone? It's always coming through the lens of the human being. And this is an argument that I've had with relatives several times. It's always passing through the lens of a human being and their experience and the time and place in which they live. Mm-hmm. And so that's always going to affect the religious text. And the more you understand about history and, and the time period in which a text was being formed, the better you understand the religion. Yeah. Context is key. So much so. Context is everything. Context, you don't know jack squat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially really, with a lot so. of text, all the translations, when you've been translated on translation, on translation, on translation, of course, a lot gets lost. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Oh, yeah. Like, speaking of translations, um, this is my favorite argument for up with some of my relatives. <laughs> King James was a flaming homosexual. And the reason why you have your beloved King James version of the Bible is like Middle English is because he wanted the church to leave him and his boyfriend well enough alone. (laughs) So he literally went to the church and said, if I commission this English translation into our modern language of the Bible, will you leave me alone? And they said, yes. deal <laughs> so that's what happened he hired all these scholars to to translate the bible into the tongue of day and, and make it poetic and flowery it's, it's not an entirely accurate translation at all but it sounds pretty and it was because he wanted to fuck his boyfriend in peace <laughs> and it was only to turn back Offensive undertaking. Like, yeah. like that was was a years long project with a lot of specialists. It cost thousands of pounds to do. So I mean, I can understand why the church would, would be willing to turn a blind eye as you know, his his live in boyfriend. Yeah. Live in boyfriend. They they had a room for him with a secret <laughs> passageway. I'm not even oh. kidding. It's so interesting because even like the books that are in the Bible, you know mostly responsible like Constantine who was a pagan until like his deathbed and he's like well shit maybe I should be Christian just in case (laughs) like it just just in case just in case but there are so many more religious texts from that time period that were being used by Christians as you know religious texts like the gospel of Mary I've never read it I don't know where to get a copy actually there's probably copies available somewhere yeah, but you know, there was there were several women who wrote gospels oh, yeah. and books that were being used in the same way that Paul's letters were being used as teaching texts, and mm-hmm. a bunch of you know white men 
mostly white men got together on a council and decided which books were going to be in the Bible, which ones were going to be canon and which ones weren't. Yeah. So again, the Bible is, is not, it did not come into being all at once. It did not come into being. It was not handed to someone by God. It's something that came together from, through a lot of people, through a lot of different lenses into a text that is at its core flawed. Yeah. And you have to understand that you have, and with any religious text, it's the same way. And you have to take everything with a grain of salt and your own understanding as much as possible of the world in which you live. Mm -hmm. Because today, very different from the past. We don't do animal sacrifices anymore. Even the people who worship the ancient gods, you know, like the gods could love animal sacrifices in the past. It's, It's not a thing anymore. Because culturally speaking, people, it, it, that's not our most valuable thing anymore mm-hmm. as a person. Like if you are a shepherd in Greece, you know, and in prehistory, your most valuable thing that you had was your flock because that was how you kept alive. Mm-hmm. And so that was the most valuable thing that you could offer to your God or gods was part of your flock. Harkens all the way back to Cain and Abel. Cain being a shepherd and Abel being a farmer. And Abel brought the best of the best and Cain did not. And the one sacrifice pleased and the other one didn't. And uh, it was all about, you know, what was your best possible offering? So so even though Cain brought a a traditional blood sacrifice, Abel's offering was favored because it was the best that he had to give. And nowadays it's, it's not... It's not a part of a culture anymore because so many of us are so disconnected from our food sources. We wouldn't even know how to process a chicken, you know, if it came to it, like much less perform a proper (laughs) animal sacrifice to your God. (laughs) Uh, Have you ever seen that show miracle workers? I have not, but it's something I definitely want to watch. Steve Buscemi plays God. (laughs) And there's a part where he's kind of like, the idea is that there's multiple gods and it, his parents were like, okay, you can have earth, even though they were like, what the fuck is that? It makes no sense. What are these animals? And he's like, <laughs> like a giraffe is a dog with a leg for a neck or something. And they're like, none of this makes sense. We're just going to let him whatever. Somebody was talking to him and he's like, they don't even make sacrifices for me anymore. And they're like, it really grossed you out. And he's like, I know, but they could at least still try. <laughs> <laughs> it was the thought that counted yeah it's really funny yeah but like a lot of, and again a lot of it's you know cultural like we don't, we don't have that same lifestyle anymore so it doesn't make sense for us to worship in the same way and that's something that is a double-edged sword with religion because religions change they have to by their nature change in order to stay alive to still be practiced otherwise mm-hmm. they die and they can change for the better or they can change for the worse. And you know, sometimes they can and walk a nice middle ground. But mm-hmm. I think for the most part, things can, can go a little wonky. Like, like yeah. again, I'm picking on Christianity because I can. Because that's what <laughs> I'm experienced with. You know, the Crusades, anyone? Mm, yeah, those were, those like, were literally... Literally giving dispensations to people to get into heaven based on the number of infidels that you killed. Oh, don't even get so started on the children. 
Man, if I shot my kind of murder, oh dear lord. Ugh, We're not going to yeah. talk about that. <laughs> Such a tragic history. Yeah. But then you get, you know, you, you, get, you do get the good Christians who do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of those double-edged swords that, you know, yeah, you've got your really culty Christians who do a lot of harm in the world, Westboro Baptist. But then you get the Christians who are actually good Christians and, you know, they do their best to improve their communities. I will say, I, I, you see that a lot more in with Muslims, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Like, Muslims take that commandment from Allah very seriously to be compassionate and provide sacrament support to their community. Mm-hmm. So you see that a lot more with um, the mosques than you do with, with churches. Like, yeah. Same thing with Judaism. That's their number one thing is to do something mm-hmm. to help people. I forgot what it's called. I'll remember it in like an hour after we finish this. I'll remember it Same. or I'll look it up. You know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night. You're so well spoken. You know so much about religion. I'm just so happy that you uh, came on here and didn't uh, think well, I was weird for like me. sliding in your DMs. <laughs> Not at all. That was great. Like anybody's <laughs> welcome to slide into my DMs. Like I was like, it can go either way. And I way. mean that, can of we... course, in, in a very non-sexual way. <laughs> I'm gonna put that out there right now. This was so amazing. It was really cool to just be able to like just have a really yeah, cool, in-depth conversation about religion. This was really interesting. There's my cat. <laughs> Yeah, you have so much knowledge. I'm so impressed <laughs> and jealous because I have to have like notes. <laughs> you knew all this off the top of your head. A lot of stuff that kind of stuck in my memory, to be honest, like stuff that I've read a bunch of times over, or stuff that you know, just happened to stick in the memory. It's really not that impressive. Well, I'm still in. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome to come back anytime. I've had so much fun. Minus the internet problems. I'll happily come back. I just want to thank Hemlock again for joining me for this episode. I couldn't think of anybody else I'd want to talk mythology and pantheons with than Hemlock herself. If you guys want to follow her, it's at Tang, T-A-N-G-W-Y-S-T-L on TikTok. And I highly recommend it. The videos are so brilliantly done and so thought-provoking and educational. I mean, honestly, the amount of knowledge that goes into all these videos just blows my mind. They're so good. A lot of them do have situations and topics that are a bit controversial. You know, like we talked about colonization and the Black Lives Matter movement. So they're just, it's highly recommend. 10 out of 10. Definitely, definitely go check it out. If you guys would like to join Patreon and watch these videos live, I would highly recommend it, especially when we're showing photos. You get to see it while we're talking. I just adore these videos. And that's patreon.com slash historical AF pod. And there's so many other benefits. You get things in the mail. You get gifts. It just depends on your tier. The higher the tier, the more stuff you get. And also, we started doing game nights, and it is so much fun. We've been playing Among Us a lot lately. Everybody murders me. It's a good time. So definitely check that out. If you like to send an email, either just to, you know, chat or to send in a listener story, that is historicalafpod at gmail.com. And if you would like merch, 
go to shop.spreadshirt.com slash historical AF pod and there'll be some sales coming up. So definitely keep an eye out for that on social media, which is historical AF pod across the board, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you just want to go to one website and have everything there so you don't have to remember anything because I don't blame you. That's historicalafpodcast.com. All right, guys, I'll see you next week with Religions Part 2. And I'm going to be joined by Marie, who is in seminary school to be a priest. I'm so excited. You guys are going to love her. And I hope everybody's doing well and staying safe and staying healthy. And I'll see you next week. Okay, bye. (laughs)